This is Building Optimal, a podcast to help builders and remodelers take your construction business to the next level. Welcome to episode 28. We're talking to Vicki Suter, president and CEO of Suter Business Builders. Vicki is a speaker, a consultant, also a coach, more than 28 years helping contractors succeed in their businesses. She's also an author. Her most recent book is called Profit Bleed, How Managing Margin Can Save Your Contracting Business. So we talk about managing margin in this conversation. We also talk about quite a bit more, like interviewing and hiring. And Vicki has some sage advice for us as builders. I really like her take on my question about the most important thing to do to manage margin if she could only pick one. It complements very nicely what we learned from David Gerstel in our earlier interview with him. So be sure to listen all the way to the end on this one, as Vicky has a very special offer that you'll want to check out, and you can get the link to that in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. So let's start with what not to do. What what is the area in terms of hiring where builders most frequently go wrong? I would say that there's um, two things that really stand out for me. One is not going into the interview prepared with a set of questions that you want to ask with a clear idea of, okay, am I the only person that's going to interview them? Do I have all my questions? Is there somebody else who needs to be in the room? Do I need to schedule someone else that they need to talk to? That kind of thing. So just be prepared and ready. And most importantly, be really clear about what do you want to know from that person that will help you really know if they're a right fit for the job. And that's really a segue to the second part, which is ask a lot of really good questions while you're in the interview. Um, Not long ago, I was talking with a headhunter friend of mine, and she said that 80% of the candidates who come back from an interview tell them that the employer barely asked them any questions, that they talked most of the time about the company. And while I appreciate that um, we want to talk about the company with the prospective employee and we want to highlight and show that we're a good place to work and that we're good people, it's super important for a good fit that we actually ask some deep questions to let us know if that person's really qualified to do that job. As an example, if I was interviewing a project manager, I might ask a question like, tell me about how you do scheduling for a project. And then be quiet and just hear what that person says. And if they respond with something like, well, you know, we have this whiteboard up on the side of the, you know, in my office, and that's how they schedule a multi-million dollar project, I'm going to be worried. Um, If I'm doing service work, then I'm like, okay, well, that might be fine, right? But then I might ask some more questions. So the idea is that you're asking open-ended questions that you ask the question and then let the person answer. Now, when I say open-ended, don't ask yes or no questions, right? Because that's not going to get you very much depth. So the more you can talk with, you know, you can ask and ask somebody deeper questions, the more quality information you're going to be able to get as to whether or not they're really a right fit for your company. Because, you know, I see this all the time, project managers say I'm a project manager, but 
a project manager in your company might be very different than the project manager in another company. I see this with finance positions all the time too, controllers or CFOs even, where somebody says they do that job, but then they come and interview and I'm like, yeah, no, you're not really at the level of being able to do that job. I'm actually in that process with a client right now of interviewing CFOs. And it's as a result of digging with some of these questions that I really found out that person really could not do that job and they could not do it well because they don't have the depth of knowledge and experience. They have cursory experience, but not the depth that we were really looking for. So that's what you want to listen for. You want to listen for, um, could they really do the job in our company of what our standards are for a project manager, superintendent, foreman, whatever. So, um, and the other, the other thing I would say is if that's not an area of expertise, like finance position, I have a deep background and experience in finance. So whenever my clients are hiring somebody at the controller, um, sometimes even an office manager, but a controller CFO level, they'll have them interview with me because they know that I'm going to ask a completely different set of questions than they will because I have a deeper depth of experience and knowledge there. So you might, you know, if it's your finance position, have your, uh, your CPA interview them not just you, right? Because then you have somebody who's got more expertise than you do in that particular area, asking a deeper set of questions. Okay. And what about red flags to look out for in the interview? Um, Red flags, I would say, if they are in the interview, the first thing is if they show up late. Um, My experience tells me that people who show up late to interviews um, that tends to be a pattern. Uh, so that's just a red flag for me right away. The other thing is people who tend to talk about um, bad talk or bad mouth their previous employer or manager. I always ask the question, tell me about why you left your previous job. I generally try to ask that question in a phone screening interview so that I'm not wasting time interviewing people that you know I know are not going to pass that first set of screening questions. But uh, if I'm, I got to that point, I am really listening for, do they have personal accountability and personal responsibility? Do they take ownership for whatever it is that had them move from that job? That's always a good indicator if somebody's complaining about, <laughs> about all the previous places they've worked. This is probably not going to be any different. Yeah. And, you know, one thing for me, think back on my history with hiring and uh, one of the things that really correlates my interview success with, with hiring success is how well I prescribe the job requirements, how detailed I get. And Mm -hmm. it seems like, uh, you know, any ambiguity leads to problems down the road. Mm -hmm. So I I've tried to just get painstakingly clear Mm -hmm. in the job requirements. And have you seen the same thing with other builders? Yes. Yeah. That's a really good point, Jared, because as you're, I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I should have mentioned a really key point there, which is before you begin interviewing, have a position agreement written. And I call them position agreements versus job descriptions because how I see it as when they're well-written, they are an agreement that you have with that person about their accountability for what specific results are they going to cause in that job. And so the clearer you are, that's a very first step, is be really clear about what's the major responsibilities of that job, what's the skills and experience that you want somebody to have in order to do that job well. 
because that will give you the basis for being able to know what kind of questions you want to ask. Uh, so being super clear about that before you even begin, uh, yeah, have it in and put it in writing, by the way. If it's not in writing, uh, it's going to be harder for you to determine what kind of interview questions you want to ask. And also, once you've written that, that can become the basis for doing your posting or giving to the headhunter if you're using a headhunter. That becomes way helpful. And be clear and be specific. Yeah. And then you can tie the, that position agreement to their compensation or any sort of bonus compensation. Well, certainly to their performance evaluations. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Well, and... Let's talk about that a little bit because I have so many builders and builder friends who've told me over the years and, and I'm the same way. It's like, you know, we create these bonus structures based on X, Y, or Z variables. And especially in custom home building or remodeling, there's so many variables that are outside of our controls or mm -hmm. one could argue are mm -hmm. outside of our controls. Like for instance, a, a bonus for hitting a time you know, saying, yes, hey, you got to If you build it within 10 months, you get a bonus. Well, mm -hmm. everybody, all of the builders that I know, we all kind of share the same issue, which is, well, they didn't build it in 10 months. They built it in 11. You know, my construction superintendent did, but they came to me with, you know, these excuses and it's like almost impossible to prove otherwise, you know, and so I ended up just paying them out their full bonus. I've heard that so many times. Yeah. Is there an antidote to that? Well, I think that um, what I know about construction is that there are a lot of variables, especially if you're dealing with other people who have to make decisions. And so one of the things I say about bonus structure and, you know, people will say, well, you know, we do profit sharing and, and we motivate people by that. And I'm like, you know, if I can't have control over it and if I can't directly impact those results, then don't bother giving me a bonus based on it because it doesn't have any pull or any motivation for me. You've got to give people bonuses based on something that they can control and that they can really have impact on. Like if you said, you know, you've got to come in on budget, then that's different than if I'm dealing with a homeowner who's not making decisions and the job is getting delayed or there was you know, unforeseen conditions in a remodel or a renovation that I didn't have any, I didn't have any control over. And so now it got pushed out, right? So all of those things are variables that are somewhat out of somebody's control. But if you give me control over cost within budget, and I approve that budget before it got, you know, it got done, that's different. Or if I'm managing to a certain number of hours, that's different. So what I would say is, you know, in terms of bonus structure, whatever you set up, you want to be, have it be that it's something that people can have control of and to be able to directly impact those results because it will be much more much more rewarding and, and motivating for somebody. And I also have to tell you that I my core philosophy is that money is not the only thing that motivates somebody to do a good job. There's way more things that, and I, you know, it's not like I'm the first person to ever say that or make that up. You know, it's it's very well known in in psychology and studies of the human brain and neuroscience that, you know, what it is that motivates somebody is a sense of contribution and value and making a difference. And so when we set up somebody in a job to start with where they get to have some control over the results that they produce and they get to have some autonomy and some sense of contribution and they're not treated just like a helper. 
then they're going to be more inclined to be more involved with you and more engaged and more committed to producing a great result than somebody who's either completely gets abdicated to where you go, you know, your job, go handle it. And there's no engagement with that person or that they get micromanaged all the way along. Right. So how do you find that happy medium in between where there's ownership, there's accountability, there is uh, managing for results with your team, but there's not, and there's that opportunity for somebody to rise up to really be able to own a result. That's very motivating for somebody. And, but it requires feedback and feedback is a huge element of that working. So one thing you're talking about right now is this, I kind of hear it as like intrinsic motivation. And mm-hmm. to me, that's something that, uh, I guess you take that one step further and you say, all right, well, that intrinsic motivation may be the most important part of the entire equation, maybe even more than money. So how do you, how do you really capitalize on it? And, and my answer is to find people who really have a passion for their particular job. Mm-hmm. So if I'm interviewing a superintendent, I really want somebody who has a passion for building and construction. They didn't just fall in it and it's just kind of what they continue doing. Yes because it's what they know. Yeah. And that's a good thing. When back to your question about what do you listen for in an interview is that, you know, is somebody passionate about what they do and do they love that work? And does it, you know, do the lights go on for them and and they like what they do? That's super important. Yeah. And how hard is that for somebody like a bookkeeper? So you're talking about giving them a sense of of contribution. I know you can do that for every, every job, but for a receptionist or a bookkeeper, how do you really make them feel like they are contributing in a large manner? Well, you know, there's a, um, when you say contributing in a large manner, here's how I think about job descriptions for people or position agreements for people is that when you set them up, if you set them up so that somebody has autonomy to produce a result and not just a task. So let me give you an example. If I'm the office manager and what I'm accountable for is making sure that all of those billings get done, uh, you know, all the billings get done by the date of the contract. And I give them the authority to make sure that the system is set up and that the communication is set up with the team that that person has the authority to make sure that that happens. Now what I've done is I've given them something that they are, um, that they can own, um, that they now have the buy-in with the team to make sure that that happens. And I've empowered them to not just be about reacting to billings as an example, right? Like instead of being somebody who is just responsible for, hey, you know, Steve, Joe, Sarah, your job is when the billing comes in or project manager tells you the billing needs to be done or, you know, the owner, then you're going to do the billings. That's your job. And I'll tell you when you're going to do the billings. That's a really different situation than Sarah, Joe, or Tom. Your job is to make sure that by the 25th of every month, those billings are out on every single solitary job. So what it means is now I have a standard in the company and I've given Sarah, Joe, or Tom that ownership of making sure that that happens. Now that just upped their level of accountability, that upped their level of importance in sense of 
of mattering in that, well, that's my job is to make sure that that happens, not just to transactionally do that thing called billing when somebody tells me to. I'm not helping somebody. I'm owning that result and I'm held accountable to it. And if it's not working, right, if I'm not getting buy-in from the project managers, I'm having pushback from the from somebody about getting the information and for me to do that, then I have the authority to go to them and go, hey, what's up? Like, what do we need to do differently? As opposed to just going to my boss saying, gee, I'm sorry, I couldn't get that done. That right there is the key to most business owners and leaders' freedom. Because when you can empower your team to own a result like that, versus be a helper to do a task. Now what you've done is now you're having a different level of conversation with them. Because if if that office manager is having difficulty in getting that accomplished, now they're coming to you with a different question as opposed to throwing the problem in your lap and saying, hey, couldn't get it done. Does that make sense? That does. And, and the bottom line that I hear is that no matter what the role of the uh, person is, they can always have autonomy. And that's really the, the path that an employer needs to be taking for every single person, every single role. Right. And I'm, I'm just going to say that I want to make a distinction here too, Jared, that there's a difference between autonomy and abdication. <laughs> because what I see sometimes is that people hire people and then they just, they go, here's the thing that you have to do. And then they abdicate it so that they don't hold them accountable for the result. And when I say abdicate, that's what I mean. So with the office manager, Sarah, Joe, or Tom, then I'm going to make sure that we're on the same page, that I expect that billings are going to show up on my desk if I'm the, the owner or the you know senior person there who's reviewing billings, that that's going to show up on my desk on the 25th of the month. And then I'm holding that person accountable to that result. I'm not just hoping and wishing that it's all going to, you know, take care of itself because, gosh, I told you that was your job. Because that gets us in trouble too, right? You know, when we just say to somebody, here, you know, it's yours. Go do it. I don't want to have to deal with it. Uh, that doesn't work either. Okay. Um, do you find that's true? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I do. I'm absorbing right now <laughs> um, because I can think back on multiple instances over my career where I've had specific examples of just about everything you've said. So, yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about the uh, masterclass that you have because it directly relates to our topic today. Yeah. So I'm doing a masterclass titled how to get your team to take more ownership. And it's all about really how do you, you know, some of the stuff that we've been talking about today uh, Jared, in terms of how do you get people to take more ownership of the result versus being helpers? And that's that thing that really trips us up is that when we are not clear about what somebody's specific job is and when we're not making explicit agreements about deadlines and due dates, what happens is we end up having a lot of people who are helpers and then pe we feel like people aren't taking ownership. But the truth is we're kind of not setting people up to uh, with a structure where they can take ownership. So the masterclass I'm teaching is 60 minutes long, and it is all about how to get your team to um, take more ownership. What are the things that you can do? And I, and I give you three specific things that you can do in the masterclass to help you create a culture of accountability with your team where, where people can actually take more ownership 
And there are, there are a couple of simple things that people can do right away. You can register at suitorbusinessbuilders.com forward slash webinar. So that's S-U-I-T-E-R businessbuilders.com forward slash webinar. Okay, cool. All right. So let's talk about, let's talk about margins. Um, first, why don't you tell us about your book on margins because you actually have written on the topic. I have. So my book, The Profit Bleed, How Managing Margin Can Save Your Contracting Business, is all about what are the ways that profits bleed out of a contracting business, specifically in terms of gross profit margins and net profit margins. But I focus a lot on gross profit margin because for a contractor, you live and die by margin. And when you know how to better control that part of your business, you can produce a more consistent result. You make a better net profit margin on the bottom line. That's the way to increase your profitability. And in all of the years, and I've been doing this for over 25 years that I've been consulting with contractors, I have found that so often it comes down to people not being really clear about their numbers. Like, what does it really cost me to, you know, to have that employee? What does it really cost me to run my business that I need to mark up my bids for? Um, what is a goal I have in terms of my gross profit margin? A lot of times we, I find that um, contractors look at it like, well, I'm going to get whatever I think I can get, or I'm going to go with what the market will bear, or this is the best that I can do. When in fact, what I find is that when you know your numbers, you start to see it from a completely different perspective. When you know what your real cost is, when you know how to control cost in enduring a project, when you have those tools, then what you can do is you can start to have a completely different approach to how you do pricing and how you do project management. So the book actually goes through, I talk about everything from um, knowing your numbers and pricing and how to make sure that you price for a profit. Uh, I talk about a sales process. And the reason I talk about sales process is it's really comes down to having a process whereby you're in educating and bringing value to that relationship with that customer in a way that they want to do business with you and that they know, like, and trust you because of your sales process methodology. Um, I talk about when you're doing the uh, project management, what are some tools in terms of two-week look-aheads or doing cost to complete and how to look about that, how to think about it. There's other chapters that talk about project management and and looking at your numbers and feedback. So all of it is geared at how do you get more control over your gross profit margin so that you can start to make a more consistent profit, both in terms of margin and on your bottom line. This business always just, uh, I laugh because I, I think about all of the different functions, you know, estimating, purchasing, sales, marketing, construction, and every single facet of this business has such a profound impact on your, uh, or can have such a profound impact on your bottom line mm -hmm. or on your gross. <laughs> and yes. it, it's like, which one, which one's most important? I think it depends on at various times, more important to focus on one than the other, because you can't tackle them all at the same time. Yeah, totally. One of the things that I always say is that I think that there's a lot of complexity to construction. It's one of the reasons I love working with contractors in this industry. 
And at the same time, there is a simplicity to understanding how to keep your finger on the pulse of the most critical elements that really drive your success. And that's really what the book is about is I actually um, give you all of those critical elements in each of those areas to pay attention to. And that will help you. What I say is it'll help you run your business from 30,000 feet versus from the weeds. And when you can see it from, you know, it's like being able to see the forest through the trees, right? When you can see it and you can see the bigger picture of it, then you can understand and know where do I need to drill down and pay attention to more detail on that particular item. So the idea is just like when you go into a doctor, um, they take your vitals when you go in, right? They take your temperature, they take your blood pressure, they take your, you know, pulse. Um, they're looking for some vital signs to let them know if they need to dig deeper to a particular issue. So the same thing is true for your business. When you know in your contracting business those critical things to pay attention to, then you can have more control over and be more efficient, quite frankly, in what you're spending your time on. And I actually, I, so I talk a lot about that. That's actually really the basis of the book is what are those key things that you want to pay attention to? And then I give people the tools to be able to do that. There's actually links to a lot of free resources throughout the book that help you implement everything in each area of your business, those tools. All right. Well, this is going to be an unfair question, but I got to ask you, mm -hmm. if you could only choose one variable on which to educate builders and remodelers about something they need to be keeping their eye on or something that they could be doing to improve their margins or preventing the bleed, as you call it, what would that one thing be? Um, this is a hard, that was a tough question. Okay. So I would say that making sure that you are pricing for profit before a project ever goes to a customer that you're crystal clear about what your profitability is going to be and that you're crystal clear about what your, you know, how much margin you're going to make, what's it going to cost. You're really solid and clear about that because when you're really solid and clear about that, first of all, that's a first opportunity that you're going to have to make a great profit on that project. Secondly is when you're super grounded in it, it's going to inform you in how you do the job handoff to the production department and it will help you once you're in production, when you're super grounded about those numbers, to be able to have that project turn out successfully. Awesome. That That is, in my opinion, also the most important thing. And the only thing I'll add to that is you can target a 25% gross profit on a project. And it seems like a, a great project, and it should be. But if it takes two years to build it or three years I'm using extremes here, then all of a sudden, you know, that gross gets whittled down by mm -hmm. the, uh, by the overhead it takes to build it. So, mm -hmm. so it's just so important in my opinion, to have a, a very solid understanding of the path forward, how long it's really going to take to build it and really make sure you're intentional with assigning that amount of overhead mm -hmm. to it in the beginning to make sure that you don't get eaten alive on, on the time. Yes, totally agree. Okay. Um, in your experience, is that also the place where you think most builders go wrong or is there another place that you most commonly see mistakes happening? That's a really big question, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> so do I see that's where they go wrong in 
in making a consistent margin? Is that where I see that they go wrong in running their business? Is that where I see that they go wrong in making a, a hefty profit on their bottom line? What's the, because I would have different answers to each of those questions. Oh, okay. All right. Let's get more specific. Let's stay on the margin topic. Is that the area where you see most people going wrong with managing their margins? And I imagine there are several, there are several. Uh, yeah. Areas. So I, the things that, here's the things that occur to me. One is that change orders is the number one place where most contractors lose money because they're not managed well. They're not, uh, you know, people do work on a project before a change or outside of scope before a change order is signed or even a work authorization is signed. That's a huge place where you can give away profits just knowing your numbers, managing your numbers, knowing your numbers, like having a relationship with those numbers and knowing which key numbers to pay attention to, you know, and then it, it makes me think well, the second place I think would be doing cost to complete. If you're constantly looking forward and looking where you're going to end up at the end, it will make you much more intentional about the and, and this comes back to schedule, right? Because being able to do cost to complete is also tied into schedule. Uh, so it ties into what you said a few minutes ago. The ability to manage schedule and manage your cost to complete, those two things will make all the difference in the world in your ability to control projects and control margin better. Because it just, you know, when you're just working hard and hoping it's all going to turn out, without ever stopping and looking at that bigger picture, without managing to that a schedule and your cost to complete and having a plan for how you're going to have a turnout. Um, you got to redo that continually, especially the longer and the bigger a project is. You know, you were talking about a minute ago for a project that goes two years, you got to be doing cost to complete every 30 days. Uh, you got to be doing a schedule very regularly. And that's your key right there. Yeah. One of my favorite methods is to use variance purchase order BPO categories. Whenever you do have something where you're going over your original budget to be able to assign those root causes to it. And then after the project, we like to go back and evaluate those things. And you can start seeing trends over time. That's a great idea. If you're constantly having takeoff errors or whatever, you know, to go make a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. I always tell people there's only three reasons to do job costing. One of them is to manage and control costs while the project is in process. Uh, two is to do time and material billings while the job is in process. And three is to use that information post-mortem to be able to analyze what you worked and didn't work in your takeoff and to make changes. Yeah. Okay. Now, do you have, while we're talking about job costing, any sort of preferred job costing platforms that you like to use? Do you like to tell people to do it in QuickBooks or to use the third-party softwares that are out there? Um, so I um, consulted on Sage for many years. Um, I have a number of clients who were on it. Um, used to be Master Builder. It's now Sage 100, but there's also Sage 300 for much larger contractors. If you're over, I would say, you know, 15, 20 million, you should be on a larger platform like that, something that's a vertical package that's specifically tailored to the construction industry. QuickBooks for contractors up until about that level, depending on how many jobs and the size and what have you, probably works just fine. Okay. Do you have anything else 
Vicky, that you want us to hit on for the the margins? I wanted to get your book out there front and center on it, but I also want to hit on any other topics that uh, that you want to share. You know, I would just. I think it might be useful to just touch on the topic of, and I'm sure this is part of your practice is like just a consistent set of a consistent system for managing for results and managing the numbers of your business, paying attention to those key things, because that's the way to get the margin, right? Like that's the way to stop the profit bleed is that you're paying attention to those key drivers that are going to help you be successful. And that means you've got a system set up for, you're doing scheduling at some regular interviews or you're doing cost to complete, you know, every month on a particular day, you're doing looking at your labor hour reports every Monday morning that all of the information that relates to your job costing, there's a system inside your company that every Friday, all of the accounting is completely up to date in the system so that you can go look at your job cost reports and see where you stand every week and know where you are in terms of hours burned or, you know, whatever, that your data and your feedback are really a critical place that you can start to produce a more consistent result. And the more you have systems set up around being able to get that feedback or review that feedback, you know, doing, uh, I don't know, like, what would you suggest in terms of scheduling meetings? Like, how often do you think schedules should be updated? From your perspective, we're we're a little different. We actually do a daily, like a little five or ten minute daily, what we call rhythm call. I'm not encouraging that. It just it works for us. Mm-hmm. It just allows us to get on the same page, especially because we we work largely remotely, so it helps to just make sure that we have that one time every single day. And then we'll have we have two. Um, I don't call them staff meetings. We call them team meetings. We have those twice a week. And one of those days we're reviewing financials each week mm-hmm. and job costs and draws each week. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. And I, I don't know if that's best. It works for us though. Well, it's, well, you know, here's the thing. It's consistency. You're communicating about where you are in terms of critical benchmarks and critical items in your business. That's the thing. It's like, you know, the book or what you're suggesting or what other people suggest those are some guidelines for you to use. And they happen to be ones that, you know, for me, when I wrote the book, that's based on over 20 years of working with contractors and seeing what works, right? Uh, But it doesn't mean that it's the final thing and it's the final say on the matter. But what's important is that there's a practice and that you're consistent in your practice. The thing I find is that the most successful contractors that I work with are those who have a consistent practice and that they're you know, faithful to making sure that they do that every week, whether it's that's like, you know, you say it's like we're looking at our numbers, we're looking at our job cost every single solitary week. Yeah, that's just a practice. And when you get used to doing that and you don't treat it as the exception, that's the way to be able to start to manage your business from 30,000 feet versus all of the, you know, all the weeds. And that's the thing that will give you more control over the results that you produce in your business. And, and it doesn't have to be a lot of them. Just, you know, choose a few, right? And then just do them consistently, have a system and do it consistently. Yeah. Just start small. You don't have to try to tackle it all at once. Right. Right. Yeah. It takes time. And can I talk a little bit about where people can get the book for free? Yes, please do. Okay. (laughs) So for a limited time, I wanted to make sure that your listeners knew this. Um, People can get the book for free at theprofitbleed.com forward slash free. 
So that's theprofitbleed.com forward slash free. And they just have to pay $7.95 for shipping and handling. And when you buy the book, you can have an opportunity to be actually be able to buy packaged up all of the, and it's just for a small price, but to be able to get all of the resources that I reference within the book. And now you don't have to pay for that at all. You can just get the book and then you can download them as you're reading the book. Um, there's a, a links throughout the book that will let you go download those resources. But those are some of the tools that will help you implement some of the stuff that we've been talking about today to be able to create some systems that you can consistently do and start having those practices that will help you increase your gross profit margin and start to have a more thriving, you know, build a business that can grow, thrive and prosper. Awesome. Well, hopefully our listeners will take advantage of that. That's an awesome offer. So appreciate you extending that to us. Vicki, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.